Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. On this episode, I was able to interview my chef, Ross Warhol. Ross is a Buffalo native who has cooked in some of the best restaurants in the world, including El Bui, Franz and Lieberg, Mbutu, and Alinea. After successfully revamping the Pelican Club in Galveston, Texas, he has returned home to elevate Buffalo's food scene at the venerable Oliver's Restaurant. He enjoys hiking, art, and the band Oregon Freeman. He enjoys cars, craft beer, and exploring Spain. I have also worked with him at a James Beard house dinner. Um, he's actually done two, but I only got to go to one because when he did his first one, I was like 11. But um, Ross has been a great mentor figure in my life. I've learned so much from him, or from him working over the last two and a half years, and I'm very excited to share with you all this episode. It is lengthy. Um, we did have the goal of making this the longest podcast so far, but Ross's story is one that I think will inspire many young cooks and will keep the candle burning for many more experienced cooks. So I really hope you enjoy this episode, and here we go. Okay, Ross, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Ray. It's good to be here. Awesome. So uh, why don't you start with, well, obviously you're my chef right now. Yeah. Uh, Chef for the next week, and you've been a mentor for me for two and a half years. So I'm very excited to have you on. So why don't you just tell us about yourself and maybe how you got into cooking, you know, your life story, I guess. Sure. Um, well, I'm currently 31 years of age, uh, born and raised in Hamburg, New York. Uh, had a great life, uh, had a great life growing up as a child. Um, loved eating. That's how I guess I became a fan of food was just through eating. Um, through high school, I started an internship as a dishwasher. That's how I got into the field um, at Daniel's in Hamburg. And also for La Galleria, it's a banquet facility near Ralph Wilson Stadium, now New Era Field. Uh, And just started dishwashing there for a side job. Um, My grandmother is one that really showed me what good food is. Uh, Probably the only household, well, growing up, that was the only meal I would be able to have with vegetables in it is when I was at my grandmother's house, green beans or, or whatever not. But my mom, when, while growing up, she always made sure we had a salad on the table at least. Um, cause I grew up on the all brown meal, a roasted piece of meat and either two starches, two potatoes, a potato and rice aroni or tater tots and fettuccine, something like that. Yeah. Uh, but it was time for me to make a college decision uh, I always thought I was going to be an engineer. I loved building Legos growing up my whole entire life, um, building other things with my hands, just being busy. And uh, I, I enjoyed the chaos of the kitchen. It was controlled chaos. And while I was there dishwashing in, in, all, in both places and really enjoyed that. So I decided to go to culinary school to learn how to cook. Um, so I didn't have to wash dishes the rest of my life. Yeah, of course. Um, there's some days I wish I was still a dishwasher. Uh, I mean, you can attest to it. I mean, you see me in the dish pit a lot, yes. uh, scrubbing dishes, because it's just a nice mental break of just making sure to make that plate or pot clean. And that's my only responsibility at that time. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, growing up eating food memories. Uh, again, my grandmother's house, she always would make me pork chops and mashed potatoes and green beans for my birthday, um, her scrambled eggs. No one will ever make a better scrambled egg uh, that I will have in her life, in my life. Um, 
you know, I, I think it has to do something with their pots and pans that they've been cooking in for, you know, 30, 40 years. Mm. Uh, that's why I think, you know, grandma, grandmother's food always tastes that great is because the pans have been used for so many years. And, but yeah, yeah, she's, she's the one that really got me turned on to, to eating good. And she, that's when I, at a young age, realized that food was so powerful because her cooking would make me so happy and mm-hmm. realizing that uh, food can change someone's state of mind and being um, and um, character in a way, uh, you know, just through a few bites. Awesome. And I know your mom's an artist, so is that where you get your creativity from? Yeah, without yeah. a doubt. Uh, growing up, I did take art classes. I, I did like charcoal drawings on Saturday mornings and that she encouraged me to take. And I wanted to, cause I, I wanted to be an artist and I just, I, I'm not crafty at it. I don't have an artist's hand of to do anything with paint or charcoal or colored pencil. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the culinary arts is called that for a reason. And about five to six years ago, I started believing in that and, and realizing it uh, with my mother seeing photos of my plates I've done and had told me, she's like, you are an artist in your own right. You just used food as your medium rather than oil paint or acrylic. And that's when it really set in that, you know, it, in hindsight, I am an artist in its, in its own way. Uh, just not, and it's a lot more fun to do it with the food because then you get to eat it rather than have to put it in a frame and stare at it at a wall. Yeah. So. <laughs> Is it more rewarding or less rewarding to know that, when you make a artistic plate that it'll be gone within the next half hour. Whereas if your mom makes a painting of you or something mm-hmm. she likes, it will stay up for. Yeah. It's eternalized. Long. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. Um, you know, we, we do take photos. You're a good photo taker. You're the one that <laughs> pretty much catalogs all of our creations in the kitchen for us. Um, but for me, like it's, again, it's in the moment because again, you can attest to it. I, I see a plate as a blank canvas every single time we plate something and, you know, as long as it's within the guidelines or as long as it can look its best, I'm okay with exploring a different way of plating something. And, you know, like you said, I played it, you would plate a dish and 30 minutes it would be gone, but in 30 minutes I get to do it another way. Mm. Uh, you always get to keep on creating. Um, but there's a lot of stress that goes along with it that I put on myself to make a plate look nice, Yeah, and which, is, which is tough. And um, when we don't hit the mark, at least we get to try again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. The other night we played this flaw dish, and you were so hell bent on it not being or not looking good, but everyone else thought it looked good. So it's yeah. for me. I mean, you know, you you push yourself to be artistic, and you push yourself to have these plates that look beautiful. And I do think it's something to be said that even something that like maybe we look we think that looks good, you still see a flaw in it, and you strive for that perfection. So I think that's one of the reasons why I look up to you so much is that strive for making everything, you know, look in your mind the way it should be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we definitely don't get us wrong. We have our victories on a nightly basis. Um, but yeah, if, if, if I know that I, I didn't put my, if I felt as if I left something off the table, um, you know, per se to, you know, I, I, if I know I could have played it better, I won't be happy until I can take a step back and, and be happy with it. Again, was it a terrible dish? No, it wasn't. But it just wasn't working for me. It wasn't exciting me. It wasn't hitting the visual aspects that I was hoping for. Uh, but flavor, I'm sure it was delicious. How can you go with, wrong with foie gras parfait? So. Yeah, it was definitely good. So uh, tell me, um, 
when you got to CIA? Because I know you did two years of culinary and then two years of baking. Yeah. Kind of let's go start with culinary. Like what were your thoughts going in? How did your opinion change of food throughout the course? Did you, when did you realize you wanted to be an executive chef? Because most students that go there realize like maybe they don't want to run their own restaurant or right. maybe do like the fine dining aspect, but you know, you've been true to who you want to be and you've gone to like the great restaurants. So when you went to culinary school, how did that kind of reaffirm that you wanted to be an executive chef or in that position? Going into school, I never had the aspiration of being an executive chef. Really? I, I, I was kind of like still trying to find what I wanted to do. Cause again, I, you know, I was set on being an engineer or, or, or something uh, mm-hmm. other than cooking. But when it was my, junior and senior year of high school it's when i made the decision and applied to the cia and johnson and wales and looked into other schooling aspects or just going through the school of hard knocks just entering the industry uh so yeah i mean heading into school i didn't know what to expect i was nervous of course because i had very minimal um cooking experience um you know i would cook here and there at home soups soups are my favorite thing to cook which i make for my family and but to actually be in a professional kitchen and, you know, expected to make, to cut potatoes this, this way or tournay and learn how to tournay vegetables and making stocks. That was all new to me. And it was very nerve wracking because, you know, uh, it was important to me those first three weeks in uh, skills one, because mm-hmm. that's the foundation. That's what everything pretty much is built on. Yeah. Now I hear it's called fundies. A, yeah. Fundies, fundamentals for yeah. all the younger listeners. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like that new terminology. Um, but yeah, it was, I was slowly getting immersed into finding my love for food. Mm -hmm. I've always loved eating it, but now I needed to find a love of preparing it and creating experiences for, um, for diners. And again, I, I I didn't realize that, or I, I was learning the skills in the first week, the first few weeks. Um, and then going into like cuisines of America and Asia and stuff like that. Those were fun classes. Chef Wong, Chef, no, not, not Wong, sorry, Chang. She was great. Mm-hmm. She always taught us about the Chinese Roboku, uh, which is your hand. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's the CIA was, was great foundation. Um, I'm glad I went to do it at Hyde Park. Uh, cause the, the whole structure of, the education there and the facilities was, was great. Uh, it was in the Hudson Valley, which was beautiful. Um, but, you know, I I had an instance. I, I failed my first term practical, cooking practical, when I was there. And it was devastating. Yeah. It was really, was. really hard. Um, you know, missing the plating window. I think I had, like, the fettuccine with, like, or the, the pasta with fiends herb and, like, roasted chicken and, like, the... <laughs> the the flounder roulade for the first course yep. i think that's that was that was the first one um and it was, it was tough you know i went back to my dorm room and you know it was just really down on myself thinking is am i really cut out to to do this you know i, I showed up to class every day trying hard i would go back to my dorm room and you know make my recipe cards and study and look up terminology and you know read on food and cooking which was also a bedtime story for me because it would help me put me to sleep Yeah, if I was that, because it's just such dry and cut material, yeah. but extremely informative. Yeah. Great book. But very, very dry. Yeah. Uh, and I was putting my all into it and 
that was the first realization that it, I might not be cut out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talked with my family. They said, just pick yourself up, dust yourself off and, and, and go again. And I think it was like three or four weeks later, I had my reschedule and, and I passed. And, it, you know, it was a nice little boost of confidence. And then going on in uh, our, the externship was where I really fell into the um, mindset of what it really entails to to create experiences for people and, and willing to put forth whatever work needs to be done in helping a kitchen team achieve goals. Um, and it was at Lafleur, yeah. where, where you also did your internship. Yep. Uh, we had a young chef there, Chef Scott Bova, um, was the chef de cuisine. Chef uh, Jonathan Halua was running the front of the house. Um, and that year, we put a lot of hard work in, and we received a AAA Four Diamond Award, which was the very first in the Western New York area. Uh, awesome. And that was when they started their run. I think, I don't know what, it was probably 2007, years. I yeah. think I was there. And when you were there, they were still they were still getting it every single year. Yeah, it was kind of weird that I was the last season. Yeah. With, yeah, we got the award that season, so. Yeah. So, you know, I, Chef Scott Bova, he was my first, like, true mentor. Chef uh, Daniel Johengen at Daniel's, um, longtime family friend still. And um, he was the very first person that kind of gave me a shot. But I had washed dishes for a year first, and then he slowly trained me on grill. But um, Scott Bova, he was the one that really instilled in me what a real chef should be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not all cooking at all. It's not, it's how you carry yourself in the kitchen and what you're willing to, um, le- how you're willing to lead by example of how you want things done or, you know, what's expected, how to shut down. I mean, he was on his hands and knees most like scrubbing underneath the dish pit to help us break down. And, you know, that, that really showed me that it's not just about cooking. It's about being a good team leader, um, across the board. Mm. And, awesome. uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I graduated in 2008 in May, I think. And then, yeah, then I worked a, uh, a seasonal job. I went to the Anthony name hotel where chef Scott Bova took over. I, he hired me as a, a personal private chef for the president of the institution. Um, spent a summer there with my best friend, Alex Gray. And, we had a great summer, learned a lot. It was, again, we kind of just got, got thrown into it, and which was nice to let us find our way and cook in our own style in a way. It's so young, but we were also directed by, by Chef Bova above mm-hmm. us, by Scott, and uh, he helped mold us those that, that season for sure. And then that's – I know I'm going through it fast, but uh, no, that summer, that's when I was over. I went out to California to do baking and pastry. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, 2009, uh, moved out to California, Napa Valley to the Greystone campus and did the baking and pastries, uh, certificate course, uh, which was great. It was a crash course. It was about a year long. We, it was the it's the same content as an associate's degree, but you just don't have to do your internship. Uh, so, uh, 2000, 2009, uh, October is when I moved out there and instantly established a relationship with Chef Durfee out there, Stephen Durfee, who was on the opening team of the French Laundry when they opened. Um, He's received a lot of accolades himself. 
and has been training and for the past handful of years and representing the U.S. in most uh, international chocolate competitions and stuff. He's he's a pretty solid guy. Uh, and there I was super excited to do that course in California because it was such a small campus. There is about at any given time about 250 to 275 students on campus. Okay. Uh, taking courses, whereas Hyde Park, it's 2,000 plus, and you have yeah. new people coming on campus and off campus every three weeks, mm-hmm. where <clears throat> California, you kind of stay with the groups of people, and they would have like three or four start dates throughout the year. Um, and the connections that I was able to make out there were, were a lot more um, focused, like I said, with Stephen Durfee, Chef Brown, Chef Joran, uh they, they were able to take a lot more time with us since uh, it was more of a smaller class size. And and re- really glad I was able to see the, the Napa region. Um, I got to work on the student farm out there uh, that was uh, just about a half mile down the road. We would grow produce and stuff like that. Uh, we started the compost program when I was there, taking all the composts or all the food scraps and making compost. It was funny because one of my side jobs – on campus was um, like a TA or just helping out um, in the kitchen on the uh, pastry side and and the hot side. And the one day I lost my peeler and I had no clue where it went. And about three or four days later, I found it in the, the scrap bin when I was dumping it out on the farm to make compost. There was my peeler right. within the food scrap. So it must have got pushed into the, the food scrap bin by mistake. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it was... I learned a lot more, um, a lot more thoroughly uh, while I was out there because through through uh, Stephen Durfee and was able to get um, some great experience at like the World of Flavors conferences where there would be chefs from all around the world coming to do demonstrations. I met Jordan Kahn there; he did a really cool pastry demonstration. Uh, so yeah, it's. It was it was a good mix to see both campuses and to get you know the the kind of bigger campus feel on the culinary side and then the smaller more focused on on the baking and pastry side. And while while going through baking and pastry, I hated it. I hated the course from day one all the way up until Christmas break because it was like the three week crash course that we had yeah. uh, in, in culinary arts at Hyde Park it was almost stretched out in four months during this program like there's cookies pies tarts quick breads um and there's only so much that i want to make mm-hmm. you know I, I was really there to go and learn ice cream sorbets plated desserts um bonbons chocolate truffles just everything uh that's more tr- uh more focused and more fine dining oriented mm-hmm. um and uh so my parents told me to stick it out until Christmas. They supported me dropping out no matter what, uh, if I wanted to. But they just said, come home for Christmas, refocus, and then go back out there. And if you still have the same feelings, um, then you know, plan your move back home. Luckily, after Christmas break, that's when we started getting to, like the really interesting things that I intended on going there to learn and um, really fell in love with baking and pastry and, and most times at, 
now I would say I actually prefer baking and pastry over culinary hot side because I can express myself through desserts a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, I like how focused and exact it has to be. Uh, whereas cooking, you know, just throw a little bit of this in there and fix that. Or there's there's pretty much a way to fix anything yeah. uh, in culinary where, you know, if you forgot two teaspoons of baking soda, you're done. You have to start over again. Uh, so, yeah, uh, I really enjoy really enjoy baking pastry. Um, but I never worked in in a position in a restaurant yet. So I've always kind of had a pastry chef in the restaurants I was working at and we would collaborate together on some things. Um, but one day maybe it's in my future to actually take on a pastry chef role. Hopefully yeah. it would be pretty cool. I mean, your pastry game is pretty strong. Um, I remember when I first started, uh, what, two and a half years ago now, uh, your dessert flavor or textures of chocolate. Mm-hmm. I think it was, I don't remember exactly all the com- components, but I remember whatever ice cream we had with the, it was like a chocolate, piece that it reminded me of oreos every time i ate it yeah i was like like this is like spot on because it's like making me feel like a kid again but it looks so elegant so yeah that's how i knew that you were like really like about pastry because when i first came here and you said you were about pastry i was like okay cool like mm. like you're you're a cook but yeah. then you actually like made your dessert and i was like okay <clears throat> you expect, just, expect to see a piece of sliced cake frosted or something on a plate rather than yeah 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 it's in you know going to pastry school was was great too because it it actually helped me learn and think beyond just the with technique wise in pastry how you can bridge that into savory you know mm-hmm. just omitting sugar or omitting other things to bring it over to the savory side and vice versa savory into you know sweet um, I like to play that fine line um, in some desserts within our tasting menus our pre dessert is usually along that fine line mm-hmm. before our last dessert where it'll just be indulgent sweet chocolatey in your face but you know i like using fennel i like using celery or celeriac i like to use rutabaga um in desserts um because i think vegetables themselves have a lot to lend to the sweet side uh the sweet world of things yeah mm. awesome i mean the sorbet you have been doing you did on a couple of tastes use it with the sea buckthorn mm-hmm. and you know we were using the olive crumble which is sweet and kind of salty I mean, it's it's a palate cleanser, but it's not really in terms of like a sweet flavor. Like it's more of a tart. It's like sweet, but it's tart almost. And right. I think yeah. that interests the guests more when they have a sorbet that necessarily isn't what they expect, but it's something that like cleanses their palate, but it also like is something that tastes really good. So mm. that's what I really also really enjoy about your your pastry side. So then after school, you went back to Chautauqua. Yeah, yeah, I went to Chautauqua after pastry school now. Mm-hmm. and worked a few years, uh, a few more seasons there. What was nice about that job was, you know, we'd go back around May and our season would end at the end of October, November. Mm-hmm. And then that would give me opportunities to stage in restaurants that I've followed for years or take time off and just spend the holidays with family, um, which I think I only did one year mm-hmm. uh, while I was there. The rest of that was traveling. Um and yeah, it was during those summers though, it was very intensive. I mean, it was a, a lot of people were coming into the hotel getting fed. Um, my second year back, uh, again, I was the private chef, um, for the president's cottage. Um, and, got, um, 
cool. So the some fa- uh, I forgot what famous comic strip the writer was. Uh, I think there's this, uh, Doonesbury or Doonesbury comic mm-hmm. strip. I'm not sure. I'm not a comic person, <laughs> but uh, we cooked for them. The Zagat family. We cooked for them privately in a home, which was pretty cool. The rating. Uh, yeah, the rating. The rating system. The Zagat family. We were able to do that. Um, yeah, just the, the the people I was able to meet and cook for it, at that place was was rewarding in itself. And and again, with my best friend, we were finding ourselves and trying to settle into a style that we like to that we wanted to cook in. And you know, it was tough because that season we really didn't have an executive chef to kind of guide us and help us through um, things and help develop and grow us. And then uh, the third season when I came back, that's when they actually offered me the chef position, the executive chef of the hotel. So I kind of fell into it in a way. I was really never expecting expecting to become a chef there or the executive chef. But, you know, through through a couple seasons and my dedication and, you know, just always questioning why and pushing, you know, for it to be better and just taking chances and doing food that would interest people rather than just keep them comfortable, okay. I think was helped me stand out to be able to be appointed to that opportunity. Awesome. And was your friend there at the time, Alex, Alex Gray? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. yeah. My best friend, uh, we met at the CIA, uh, kind of, I met him when I started my, my externship at Lafleur. Uh, he was at that time, him and his girlfriend were on academic probation from the CIA. Uh, they, they had a little trouble with coach Canner, uh, with menu, menu development class and didn't want to conform to his rules of how to properly write a menu. And I still love that story. Cause Alex has Alex and Marissa have great points in all that. And with that result of being on academic probation, I met my best friend still to this day. You know, we, mm-hmm. we bonded so quickly. We, we cook really well together he knows exactly what I need when I need it. Um, and yeah, so we spent the summer working at LaFleur together. We went back to school and him and his Marissa, now they're, they're, they're fian- his fiance. They're about mm-hmm. to get married. Um, they graduated, I think like two months before I did. So it was kind of good to go back for the second half of my schooling with, with a good solid couple friendships. Good. And um, yeah, and we cooked for years after that together. He and his uh, and Marissa went and did uh, about four years at the Inalil Washington with Patrick O'Connell, and then now they're currently with Dago, uh, touring with bands, King for Dave Matthews and uh, Mumford and Sons. They're starting their tour in, in March with them. Uh, so yeah, they they live a pretty cool life. Awesome. They traveling traveling the the country cooking for cooking for rock bands. Great, and I remember. Um... You telling me? I'm not sure if it was Chautauqua, but you had a garden. You yeah. started a garden. Was that also? A- yeah, Chautauqua. That's at the hotel. The first year, um, all the way on the one end of the the grounds, to gated community. I was able to get like a real small plot of land. It was it was nothing big. It was like thirty by thirty, and just grew some simple vegetables, uh, which then actually inspired them to create a community garden for anyone in on the grounds who owned a house they actually expanded that land to have 12 other plots that they could um, grow vegetables or flowers, whatever they wanted in. Um, 
And that snowballed into having a potluck dinner at the end of the year. Everyone who had a plot, we all harvested our vegetables and made something to, to contribute to a potluck dinner in the garden at the end of the year, which was a lot of fun. Um, I did take a year off uh, from uh, the hotel when I spent a, a year in Spain. Mm-hmm. And um, when I came back uh, from that hiatus, they they gave my plot of land away. Really? So, yeah, which I was a little bummed. No one, no one from the hotel took it over and, and wanted to grow anything. So that summer... I insisted we put um, like uh, raised beds up on the roof of the hotel, and which they went for. We spent a good half a day lugging up bags of soil, and we planted planters full of tomatillos and okra, tomatoes, carrots, beets, um, and successfully grew a lot of things on that roof of the hotel. And we did a dinner at the end of the summer called Roof to Table, where everything that was on the plates was uh, Vegetable-wise, was from our garden boxes up on the roof. Awesome. Um, and then my final season there, uh, I was able to actually expand across the street from the grounds, which was a big undertaking. It was about a hundred and fifty by a hundred and fifty foot plot that really? we had, and that summer I produced probably three to 400 pounds of heirloom tomatoes because um, tomato plant is my favorite to watch grow and just watch it mature from, you know, from a seedling all the way up. Um, we grew pumpkins. We were able to take some pumpkins to farmer's market, like the amount of pumpkins we had. And that, that plot supported bloom, which was a pop-up restaurant that it was more of a pop-up restaurant. It was open Thursday, Friday, Saturdays inside the hotel in an owned, uh, own separate room and every single thing that went into that dining room was either grown by us or sourced within 10 miles from the hotel. Really? Uh, yeah. I found a local uh, guy with some cows down the street who I was able to donate money to get milk. I kind of legally purchase it from him, but we would go there and get milk and have the cream, separate the cream, culture the cream and churn our own butter for bread service uh, we would also take the cream and make our ice creams and the milk and stuff like that. Uh, we were using Lake Erie fish, like Lake Erie walleye and perch. Um, mm-hmm. cool. yeah, good grass farm that you're, uh, familiar with. We were using their chickens. Um, yeah, just, it, it was great. Uh, that's where I was probably my most engaged and happiest of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so far of just the mission behind it of being that focused on sourcing properly and, and just trying to deliver an experience. I mean, it's, it's an experience to, to go there and, and know that, you know, the person who's cooking your food is the one that's actually growing it as well. Mm-hmm. So. Awesome. So after Chautauqua is when you went to Spain or in the middle, you said you took that break and. Yeah. Yeah. So in 2010, um, well, in 2009, to, to reverse a little bit, 2009, I went to the World Pastry Forum in Arizona. Okay. My mentor, Chef Stephen Durfee, was able to get me on the volunteer staff to be to participate in volunteer in demonstrations and whatnot for the, the event. And I was able to uh, bump elbows with uh, Albert Adria for a good week. Awesome. And um, at the end of the week, he asked uh, through all of our conversations and 
and time that we spent together at the end of the week, he asked if I wanted to work at El Bulli. And that was like, I lost my shit. I started crying right there in front of him. Um, he had his translator there with him. I didn't know much Spanish at the time, very little, in fact. And uh, yeah, he said, you know, we're currently in our season right now, so you won't start until two, uh, in, until June of the following year. So that was a really long year to wait. I was yeah. on pins and needles. Yeah. You know, I, I, would, I would get an email. I'd respond to the email with like all my information they needed, my passport photo, uh, stuff to get their stuff in line for me to come over. And then I wouldn't hear anything for three or four months. And then wow. I'd get another email. And before you know it, it was opening day at El Bulli, and I was still in Buffalo, New York. Um, but the very next day, and I was bummed out. You know, I was like, man, you know, I got hosed. I, I kind of got fooled or whatever not got my expectations up and, and dreams. But the very next day I got a phone call from the restaurant asking where I was. And I simply told them I didn't have a start date. No one got, I sent multiple emails. No one got back to me to let me know when I was supposed to be there. Yeah. Uh, Cause in the woman that was handling mine and four other people's visas to help us get over there, um, she either got quit or got fired or something. And there was five of us left in left in the loop that didn't have our, credentials in place yet really uh yeah so um so they, they said can you be here next week and I, I told them i'll be there in two days so i dropped that day i booked a flight i did everything i needed to do to be able to board a flight in two days to really pick up and leave for a year um and that's when i knew it was for a year because uh that was the very last season that they were open mm-hmm. um they already made the announcement uh, a couple months before they opened for that that season and and yeah, it was it was it was quite a roller coaster of a ride to get over there. But once once I landed, it was it was extremely surreal showing up the very first day and with my suitcase coming out of the taxi cab, not knowing, didn't even know where I was living yet. Really? Uh, they told me they were providing housing. I didn't get to see it at all. And I just went straight to the restaurant and they said, "Do you have your whites with you?" I said, "Yep." And they said, "Okay, well, you're expected to be in the kitchen in ten minutes." So there I am, tearing apart my suitcase getting dressed and going, going down there to work my first shift. And at the end of the night, I just, they loaded me up in one of the, one of the other cooks cars and told me to, told them then to drop me off at a certain location. And that's how I found that was my apartment. So yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was an experience, but you know, working there and being a part of something great and being a part and seeing how disciplined that whole entire team was of just simply documenting every single move in that kitchen. You know, if you're sweating onions, they would take a picture of the onions that were sweating in the pot. And then they take a picture of you stirring it with a wooden spoon. And then they would take a picture three minutes later when it slightly changed colors. And Hmm. just, it was unreal how disciplined they were um, in that regard. And plus, you know, production wise, it was, it was awesome to be a part. You know, there was a, there was a team of 18 of us that would stand in the middle of the kitchen, just knock out prep. You know, most, most places you have a prep list and, you know, this person's doing that project. This person's doing that project there. They had such a big infrastructure of a team. They had 18 people that would just fly through projects like, you know, boning out, uh, you know, sucking pigtails after they were pressure cooked. It would take one person probably an hour, but for us, they'd set us up. We'd get it done in 10 minutes, and then we'd go into the next project of cleaning, you know, 20 pounds of black trumpet mushrooms. Then we would go into the next project of 
extracting the germ out of every single corn kernel in the middle of a steamed corn cob. Wow. That was the most tedious thing I've ever had to do, but, you know, we would get it done in 20 minutes. Yeah. And where if two people did it, it would take them five hours. Mm. So, yeah, it was to see them how to see how a kitchen of that caliber runs and they can still and they still can continue to, to develop on a daily basis while getting their stuff done for the menu that night was incredible. Awesome. What was the most important lesson you learned there? Uh, just self-respect for yourself, really. I mean, you know, they were very focused on making sure that we all knew we had a part in the restaurant. We had creativity meetings most every week. Mm-hmm. Sometimes every other week we would show up two hours before and we'd all sit down and, and discuss ideas. So they made us feel a part of it, but they were, they were letting us, they were teaching us to never let our guard down to always, you know, have that respect for ourselves, not to cut a corner or not to accept anything less than your best. You know, it's, a, they, they encouraged us to fail mm-hmm. during those creativity meetings but have that discipline to record why you, why you failed and what could be have been done differently or you know think a different way it's they that's where i learned to just really have pride in your work while your feet are in the, are on that kitchen floor you know just always just do it for more importantly for yourself, not 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 to let any work slip by that you're not proud of. Awesome. And so, why do you look up to Albert Audrey so much? Because obviously, Ferran was the front runner of all the media and the press. And I mean, a lot of people know now that Albert was more like the behind the scenes person in some yeah. case. So, like, how did you? Because being a young cook, you probably everyone probably was like about Ferran. How did why did Albert Audrey inspire you so much? Um. Just his his vision of food. I mean, when he came out with Natura, the his pastry cookbook just solely focused on inspirations from nature. Uh, that really spoke to me because I, I love being outside. I love nature. Uh, I love taking walks through the woods. I love, you know, being on the coast somewhere by the water. It's just I can see why he got so inspired to do a whole entire book. Um but for, for me to gravitate towards Albert was he was he was more about the food. I mean, he was more about the, the creation of it and and always questioning why. Where Ferran, not discrediting him in any way, he was a great he was a great team leader. He knew how to delegate and manage other important members of the team like Uriol and Edu and uh, you know of his creativity team and, and his team in the kitchen um, and coordinate how service could could work mm-hmm. and, and run where you know Albert was the creative side behind it and just again just always questioning that that's if you if you never question anything then you're just failing yourself and it's a missed opportunity in my eyes if you just kind of be like well yeah that, that happens because it just happens 
Mm-hmm. Why does it happen? Then why does that happen? And before you know it, you have this huge conversation and a dish that, or, or something that can be so torn apart to the base of understanding that aspect to rebuild it into a new um, creation. That makes sense. (laughs) That's that's a lot of vagueness, but I mean, I guess, I guess, cooking is vagueness. I mean, you know, at any given moment, things can change. I mean, that's why I love working. That's why I love this career is because it's it's never the same thing on a daily basis. It's it's, you know, you can you know what to kind of expect, but it never goes the the way you hope for it to go. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And I mean, definitely to this day, I see you still get ideas from your time there. Uh, a couple months ago when you made the puree with the cocoa butter, that mm-hmm. was just like a note you jot, jotted down in your notebook. Like it was like taking purees with coconut, cocoa butter. I yeah. Guess. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, those little pocket notebooks are, are so important and I, I stress everyone carrying them. Um, and if, if they want to, again, you know, if they have that respect for themselves to, to note everything that they see, because like you said, I stumbled, I stumbled upon those, the, that book, couple months ago and i haven't seen it in years and i saw the one note that i made of emulsifying cocoa butter into purees to make it more unctuous and more of a smoother like fatty um emulsified texture without really altering the flavor because cocoa butter is kind of a neutral flavor Mm -hmm. and so i think we did it with a plum puree and it had the consistency of ketchup and it tasted like ketchup and um yeah it, it was it was cool to revisit to, to revisit that note that I made back, you know, eight years ago and finally come to fruition on it and, and discover that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's kind of interesting to see like how our notes when we're in culinary school or when we're young kind of translate. I mean, even for me, I looked at my notebook last night just to kind of get ready for this. And a lot of what I wrote down in fundies wasn't about cooking. It was about what chef Saron was saying about being a leader in the kitchen or being mm-hmm. a cook who's respected. And I've found that those lessons meant a lot to me. And just like looking back on that now, it was nice to see like how those lessons have shaped me over the years from yeah. just one class. So it's definitely interesting to look back at your notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I want to talk about the other restaurants you worked in. So you got to work at Ubuntu with Jeremy Fox. Yep. Uh, yeah, Ubuntu was great. Um, Jeremy Fox was just on his way out. So I was, uh, I was unable to work with him, but Chef Aaron London was the one who took over okay. lead. And he was a great dude. Uh, their biodynamic farm was incredible. The The produce that would get dropped off to the restaurant each morning was just so pristine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the micros, the, the actual vegetables, you know, leaves of plants that I would never even think of using. Um, it was just really cool. And to see how they would never really waste anything. Um, there was this one dish where we used a lot of carrot juice. And we would take that pulp and make a dough with flour and egg whites that would we would actually bake in clay pots to then actually be the serving vessel that we were serving the grits in. So, you know, it was edible, but it was, you know, kind of salty. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't I, I wouldn't suggest eating the whole entire vessel mm-hmm. uh, of it. But, but yeah, learning to really use ingredients to their full potential and usage is what I took from that place. Um, getting flavor into a dish 
and making it exciting where it's all vegetable based rather than, you know, having animal fats to make it taste better or things like that. It was, it was really, really cool to learn. Um, and yeah, it was, it was, it was a good stage. Um, I, I was there for about two months and, uh, yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. Cool. And did you have any creativity, like creative power there at all? Did you ever create anything or was it more just learning? Yeah, it was more just learning. Yeah. Yeah. I, I didn't have, there wasn't any opportunity where we sat down for a, a menu discussion or uh, specials weren't really um, a thing there. It was just kind of a set menu. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, just learning the techniques of, you know, making steam buns for the, for the burrata dish and uh, making the ice creams. Um, I did get some pastry work there, uh, not much with the pastry chef, Carl, who was, who was a great dude. Um, but yeah, it was just, I was more of a producer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then near the end of my time there, I was able to go out into the, to the kitchen. It was an open kitchen. The t- kitchen's right in the dining room. And I was able to work the line there, uh, for the last, for the last few weeks. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He's, it's a great, I mean, the book on vegetables by him was something great. I know he wasn't there mm-hmm. when you were cooking there, but I was kind of upset because when you told me about the restaurant, I was like, well, this sounds really cool. I mean, it's like cool to go stage there and then seeing it's closed. Yeah. Kind of was a bummer. But um, what about in Sweden? I really, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce the name correctly, so you can just say it. Uh, yeah. So it's, when I was there, it was Fransen Lienberg. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now it's known as Fransen. Okay. Um, so uh, Bjorn Fransen and I forgot the first guy's name, but uh, Leenberg uh, were the two chefs there. Bjorn was savory and Leenberg was uh, was sweet and pastry. Um, the time that I went, they were they started having a falling out uh, between the two of them. They uh, they unfortunately decided to go separate ways and still keep the name of the restaurant until they could legally figure out how they can separate. Um, but yeah, Franz and Lieberg was really cool. It was, uh, I tried getting into the restaurant for years. Um, the first attempt I tried, my schedule didn't line up with theirs from the time that I had off. They didn't have any room in the kitchen for me to stage. Um, so they told me to try back the following year, which Mm -hmm. I did. I sent another email and we were able to set up something for a three month stage. And so I went over there uh, it just it just popped up on my Facebook like memory thing a few weeks ago. I, I left like the the second or third of January, and I was there until uh, and beginning of April. Okay. Um, and it was really cool. It was, I believe the the menu was eighteen, roughly eighteen courses, and we would cook for sixteen people a night. That mm. was it. Um, like every fifteen minutes, two people came in, and uh, they had a really cool bar like right on the pass for four, for four people to sit um, that would actually watch in front of them, the chef Bjorn working and, and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, just having the local farmers, like local producers just come and knock on the side door of the kitchen and we would open it up and say, Oh, well we have this cream that we just got, or, you know, this milk was just milk this morning, or you should try this cheese. It was really cool. And it was the very first restaurant that I actually, was against what I was learning. Like, you know, when I was at El Bulli, it was like, you know, that's the mecca of molecular gastronomy. You know, he, they do a lot of out there stuff and 
and in modern techniques where at Franz and Leinberg, it, they more focus on the ingredient, the ingredient itself mm-hmm. and to really showcase that ingredient, um, some in old world techniques, some in modern techniques. I mean, they, you know, they did have their water baths and, you know, um, I forgot the name of the equipment, but it's, it's a, a certain type of oven. But, you know, mm-hmm. they, they, had, they had the tools to do, you know, some some great things. Uh, but they didn't let that mask their mission or their identity. Okay. And, um, yeah, it was the very first – at the time, it was two Michelin stars when I was there. Uh, and it was the very first time I saw a kitchen that had a Michelin rating – that was so laid back. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, we, we were able to listen to music. We were able to talk and, you know, tell some jokes. Um, but within reason, you know, we knew we were there to get a job done. We were expected to get our job done. Uh, but there was a sense of just um, a calmness that Bjorn didn't like any yelling. He did not yell himself. He, there was times he made a request from other cooks that were getting a little loud to quiet. Um, cause he, he didn't like how that his atmosphere is getting clouded, mm. um, with negative energy. Um, and yeah, when it came time for service, when it came time for us, you know, to execute, we, you know, we locked it up and snapped into place and, and it would always crush every single service. I mean, every single night we did 16 people. I, I remember one night we did 12 cause there was a bad snowstorm and there was four guests who couldn't make it to the restaurant. Mm. Um, yeah, it was, it was extremely creative. It, what I learned from Bjorn is how to be a storyteller okay. through cooking and through the experience. Cause we had a saltwater aquarium in the kitchen that we would keep, um, the langoustines living in, uh, for the one langoustine tartare dish, you know, we would fish these langoustines, langoustines out and put them on a platter, deliver it to the table. He would go over with the guests the reason why we're using langoustine, the breed, the characteristic of the meat and how, you know, different ty- during different seasons, their flavor changes and he tells the whole story. And then we would receive them back into the kitchen and two courses later, they would be eating that langoustine that was living no more than 10 minutes ago yeah. as a fresh tartare. And that was one of my favorite dishes there. And, um, which I can accredit to my cooking style. I guess flavor profile is a lot of the Nordic um, region because that Franz and Lindbergh was the restaurant that impacted me the most on style of cooking for sure. I enjoyed my time there. I loved it. Um, Learned a lot. I'm so glad it was an English spoken kitchen so I could learn everything. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Heavy thought going over there. Yeah. But yeah, and again, like the bread, we would make, we would, we would time the bread out perfectly where we would mix it right at the beginning of service or 10 minutes before service. And when the tables would come in, we would lay the display box of their loaf of bread with a piece of glass over it in this, in this box. And they would watch it proof and rise at their table for like the first five to six courses. And then bread course would come in and we would remove, the server would remove the box off their table we throw it in the Jasper oven. Jasper ovens, I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're so like, they're insane. Yeah. They're like, they're wood-burning ovens. They get up to like seven, 800 degrees. Yep. 
And so we, th- we would throw the loaf of bread in, in, you know, a minute and 15 seconds, fresh baked loaf of bread with our cultured, you know, whipped smoked brown butter. Uh, we do a brown butter here. That's where I got the technique from for our butter service here at Oliver's. We just don't smoke it. Um, yeah, they would do the smoked brown butter there. And it was just incredible, just the, the, the story and how he would begin the meal with like uh, five like canapes, mm-hmm. if you will, on, on a tray. They all were, the first five were savory. And at the end of the meal, he would send out the same, but they were all sweet. But they looked exactly the same as if they did at the beginning of the meal. That's so cool. it was kind of like coming full circle um, throughout that meal and experience, which was which told a story and I, I love telling stories through food and, and it's, and so I learned that from Bjorn. Awesome. Yeah. And then, uh, Alinea, you got to stage at for a month, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that was, uh, uh, I have a lot of respect for the guys. I have a lot of respect for that kitchen and grant and, and what they do there, but that was the least favorite of the kitchens I've worked in. It was, it was a really cutthroat, really hard kitchen to work in. Um, and I was a kid. So I went from El Bulli, moved home, uh, spent like three weeks at home, and then went to Chicago and started there. And it was just eye-opening. It was long days. You know, half the battle was making the commute. I lived, you know, a 35-minute com- train ride um, away from the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So waking up early to get on the train and make sure I'm going to show up to work early so I wouldn't have any issues. And then, you know, starting at 10 or 11 in the morning, you know, getting out at two in the morning then train ride all the way back. And before you know it, you know, it's three in the morning, four in the morning, you take a five hour nap and you're up and having to head back right, right back in. Um, I did not mind that lifestyle, but, the way I felt leaving that kitchen every single night was the problem of just always feeling as if I failed and just being resentful for how myself and others were being treated in the kitchen uh, was, was tough. And I knew if I stayed there any longer then I would most likely hate cooking all to begin all, all together. Mm. Um, you know, I enjoyed and I take value in the time I did spend there and learning techniques and being a part of, you know, a great restaurant. And I still reference their expo in that restaurant of being the most sound and efficient expo person I've ever seen in my life. Just calling tickets and how they would fire courses. One course would have to get fired literally 15 courses before they needed it. Cause that's how intensive, how intensive the plating was. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, luckily I was going home to my sister. She, mm-hmm. cause I was staying in, in her apartment while she was living there. I didn't have to make a fully commit move by myself. So I just crashed on her couch and which made me be able to make a quick move back out to California. And that's when I went to, um, Ubuntu okay. after, after Alinea. Um, but yeah, it's there's there's not it's tough to say that there's not much po- much positivity that I took away from Millennia. Mm-hmm. And it hurts to say that, but it also showed me how I didn't want 
a kitchen that I ran to run, meaning in regards to, you know, like, uh, self-esteem things. And, and just, I was, I was being put down constantly. Other stages were being put, put down constantly. The staff members, you know, the, the, the salary line cooks there were extremely aggressive and mean. Um, but you know, it's, I don't think you need to have that atmosphere to cook good food. in. I, I understand it's cutthroat and it, that it's stressful and, you know, we're all there trying to achieve greatness, mm-hmm. but it, you know, if, if you don't even enjoy being the atmosphere or the setting in the kitchen that you're in, what's the point of trying to translate into food? Cause I, I hate cooking angry cause it just, I think it, on my food tastes angry. You can tell it's just not yeah. right. Yeah. It's forced. It's not, it's, it's lacking in things. Maybe it's seasoned too aggressively or, you know, cook too hard. You know, it, I think you have to be in the right mindset. You have to be in the right environment to cook very well. And I just didn't feel as if that environment was for me. Cool. So I guess the last area we'll touch on uh, locations wise was uh, Dallas. So if you just wanted to touch on, or sorry, yeah, Dallas, right? No, or, Galveston. So Galveston. Like, yeah, 45 Galveston, minutes Galveston. south of Houston. Yeah. Um, so or Houston. Yeah. I knew it was one of those cities on <laughs> there. I haven't been to Texas. Texas is a big so. state. There's a bunch of cities. Yeah. 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 Uh, friend from culinary school uh he his family has a long time restaurant um guido seafood they're still open i believe it's 110 years old wow. um yeah and they had a private members dinner club that fell on some hard times their members weren't really supporting it so they asked me to come down there and kind of revamp it reconceptualize and, and open it as like a chef featured restaurant mm-hmm. um went down there uh, and we did just that, you know, we shut down for a couple months, renovated the place, opened it back up. And within the first couple of weeks, we landed on, uh, eaters heater map, um, where the new restaurant that are opening up that month, um, kind of get reviewed in a way. And, uh, we landed on the number one spot for, I think it was the month of May. And, awesome. and uh, yeah, it was great. It was a small 36 seat restaurant. Um, we were known to have quite the following in our lounge area, um, bar patrons and, and do a really cool bar menu there. Uh, we offered a tasting menu as well that a lot of people took advantage of. Um, and yeah, it was, it was tough when I first started cause you know, I was born and raised in New York and you know, our, our food up here is a lot different than the Gulf coast of Texas and. Yeah, you know, I I had some patrons tell me to stop cooking my Yankee food and <laughs> learn how to cook Gulf Coastal cuisine, which I kind of learned that it's a seafood on top of seafood. Mm-hmm. You know, people love like their flounder stuffed with shrimp stuffing or or things like that. So it was hard for me to adapt, um, but I took great pride in how I did. I, I think. I was able to stay true to myself yet still deliver what they were, what they were, they were looking for, um, the locals and, and we definitely won them over. I spent a good three years down there. Awesome. Great. So I guess before we, I had some more questions to ask, but now one that came into my mind, so you've had a lot of opportunities where you've gone in you've, you've been the chef or you've been someone who created and obviously it's cause you built up your resume. Hmm. Um, what do you think for like the young cooks out there? Like, 
who want to be in your position where they can go down and someone can ask them to help them revamp a restaurant or whatnot? Like, what's the best advice to give someone that's looking to be in those roles? Um, I would have to say, you know, just you, you have to have it first off is just identifying if you have the passion, you know, the passion that burns within mm-hmm. is, is, is one of our favorite sayings between you and I, Ray. Yep. And, uh, you know, if, if you don't have it, then, then what's the sense of trying to force it? Um, I mean, granted someone can be happy cooking and just cooking being a line cook or being a pantry prep person or being, you know, like a catering cook, something mm-hmm. like that. But the passion really has to be there to continuously to push and to do whatever it needs to happen to constantly progress. Mm-hmm. You know, there's been plenty of late nights. There's been plenty of, you know, I've, I've worked 48 hour shifts before and, you know, it, it may seem crazy and stupid to most, but to the individual who's striving to, to make a mark and to achieve, to get one step closer to achieving what they want, you know, to them, it's really nothing. Yeah. Um, you know, just putting yourself in the right place at the right time was a big factor for me. You know, I knew Albert Audrey was going to be at the world pastry forum. So I made sure I was in Arizona, yeah. uh, you know, to hopefully just bump some elbows with him. And we, we did just that. Uh, and just never, never giving up. Uh, there's been plenty of days where I've, you know, I ask myself at what cost is it to me that I, I push so hard? You know, I, I hurt friends' feelings if I miss their their birthday party, or you know, I, I I hurt family members when I'm unable to make it to their to their birthday. Or, I mean, we've we went through the holidays this, this year together. Yeah. You know, you and I on different outlooks not not different you know we we believe it it hurts us as an individual more to be away than you know giving the opportunity to create to provide a guest with their meal and i loved your podcast you know you you exactly hit on on the right point you know we are here and we are i am proud that we were able to provide a special holiday setting from for 265 guests who came through our door that day you know they came here trusting in us to, to give them a meal that they will remember on their holiday. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we, we stress on perfection so hard. And during those days, there's, there's nothing we're far from perfection when we're trying to push out yeah. meals in that capacity. And we leave, you know, I left that night feeling not overly proud of what we served. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's not garbage. It's not it at all. You know, it's, you know, coming from the background that I did, you know, I always want to make sure that every piece of food and every garnish is in the, the exact spot that I want it. Yes. Um, you know, it's, that it's, I just kind of feel as if we, it just gets me down knowing that. And then on top of it being away from family on, yeah. on a holiday. Uh, so, I mean, it's, it's just, Getting back to the original question, it, it just it, it all depends on how bad the individual wants it. If you know, if you want to be a part of a team in a restaurant that's doing big things, go out and do it. But 
just know that the word no can't really be in your vocabulary mm-hmm. to yourself or to whoever who's asking you to do something. Um, you know, to get into a position where someone will trust you to come in and kind of revamp and reconceptualize a restaurant, you know, it's, you just got to take chances and, and put yourself out there, you know, just make sure that you leave. Another one of my favorite sayings is no, do not leave any ammunition laying around. Mm-hmm. Like always make sure that you're double and triple checking yourself. Cause it speaks thousands of words across the board, um, to anyone, um, that you've worked for that will carry on your name in good regard. Yeah. That's good advice. Um, yeah. I mean, you were kind of the person who broke me out of my shell of thinking that a work day was only eight hours. Uh, when I first started, I remember when I think it was a month in one of our nights, I said I was tired and it was like, after we did like a Shunday or dinner, you were like, go home. And I was like, what? And you're like, if you're tired, go home. But like, we want to be here. And it wasn't in a mean way, but you you sent me home, and I was and I was like, all right, so this is what it's all about. Like, even though it's late at night, and we're you know, maybe we like did the job that most people would do. If we really want this, like we're gonna have to come in, and like that inspired me every day, you know, to come in and work hard and stay long nights. And you always, even though I was young, I think I was what eighteen when I came here. Yeah, uh, you you treated me like I was, you know, just another cook. You know, someone like who was like 24, 25, and you expected me out of me, you know, stuff that I didn't even expect. Um, the other story, the sandwich story, which is <laughs> my favorite, always our favorite story to retell. <laughs> I'm so ashamed of myself, though. <laughs> it, it's going to sound mean, but it wasn't, it's not as mean as it sounds. It was actually quite funny. So, Ross and I had just, we just got done cooking for the Chandelier Tissier, which is a gastronomic organization. Um, on top of that, we had what 125 guests on the books, I think. Yep. That night, so we had the tasting menu, the guests, and at the same night, we were going to the Black Sheep, which is a restaurant from around here, and we were going to do a midnight mass they had at the time, which was uh, dinner that was run by a local chef. You know, every I think it was every month or every couple weeks. Yeah, every every the last Saturday of every month. Okay. There, a guest chef was invited into the Black Sheep to take over the restaurant for a night. Yeah, and it was um. It was cool because it was when most of the industry people got off and you would go buy a ticket and after work you would go there. But here was me, young young Ray DeLucci, and carrying slates up because we were doing uh, – we did a scallop dish on these floor tiles and I was ended up being the one having to carry all the tiles up. I was super hungry and the sous chef at the time, Chris Keller, who's still a sous chef here and one of my mentors at Oliver's, handed me a sandwich from the catering walk-in. And I come around the corner to the catering kitchen and Ross is like, what the hell is in your hand? And I was like, uh, sandwich. And Ross just smacks the sandwich out of my hand. And the sandwich actually sticks to the catering ceiling. And it will forever be one of the most funny yet jaw dropping times I've ever had with Ross. Um, I ended up later that night on the way there, I ended up having to go back to the restaurant to grab some scallops. And I took three sandwiches with me just to prove my point that I was going to eat them yeah. on the way over to the black sheep. And Ross didn't know that until a couple of weeks later. But it still was one of the most funny times I'll ever have in a kitchen. Yeah, I was so caught up in in the rush of trying to pack up and after working a service ourselves on trying to pack up, you know, all seven courses mm-hmm. for the tasting menu we were doing in some other restaurant. I was so caught up in just trying to get everything together and loaded in time. I just like I saw that sandwich. I was just <laughs> like, 
we have we have bigger things to be <laughs> thinking about than the sandwich right now. Um, yeah, it's it wasn't my best moment. It makes for a good laugh, uh, but yeah, I've. Yeah, but on top, like, but on top of that, you know, just to balance it out, Ross is. I told him this before plenty of times. He's the most kind person I've worked for in terms of executive chefs, and the fact that he, like I said, always treated me as not a kid, but as a cook, as someone who was there to learn. He was always fair to me. He always was there to hear about you know what troubles I had outside of work. It was never like at the end of the day he didn't want to talk. There were plenty of nights where we've talked about things, and you know I've been able to just you know, spill my emotions to him probably more so than a lot of other people in my life. And he really does care about all of his cooks. And I think the biggest, one of the biggest impacts is I came in to eat with uh, a couple of friends and he came in on his day off to do a tasting menu for us, which already was like, you know, you didn't have to do that. But then I go back in the kitchen to thank you and you're in the dish pit washing dishes. And I was just like, this guy went from having a good day off to doing an eight-course tasting menu for us. with, And now he's washing dishes because the dishwasher had to leave for some reason. And it was then that I knew that I truly respected Ross. Not even, not even as much for his food, but for his work ethic. And for me, going into the CIA, a lot of my friends will know that I was kind of a dick starting out at the CIA. Because I really liked working and I you know, didn't like slacking off. And they probably just saw me being a stuck-up. But seeing someone like Ross, someone who kind of got that work ethic really brought the best out of me whenever I came into work. So, and also being patient with me because I, I do believe I'm one of the most mess up cooks that probably ever existed. I, I mess up a lot. So to this day, I always find a way to make a mistake in a kitchen. It's just my, just my personality, my goofy demeanor. I'm always, there's always a mistake. So yeah, it's always been great and always been honored to have Ross as a chef. So yeah, no, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, Touching back on like the employee, I'm a big believer in employee, any employee health and making sure that they're okay. Um, you know, treating you as an equal when you first, you know, came on. The reason why I treated you with that much respect right from the beginning is because you you sought out us. It's not someone that I found was just like almost kind of forcing me saying, hey, you come work with us or whatever, not. You know, I got, you slipped into my DM, <laughs> you, did, you know, you messaged me saying, Hey, I'm Ray. I, I have some time off of school before I go on my internship and I have four weeks. I, I would like to come and work for you and whatever not. And, you know, it, that, that's what I look for in, in, in people, these now, mm-hmm. you know, young kids coming out of culinary school, like it's just not going to be handed to you. It's not, you have to go out and you have to get it. You have mm-hmm. to be hungry. You have to grind. Um, and, you know, I enjoy when I encounter individuals like you with that mentality because it just makes my job so much more rewarding. You know, sure, other aggravations of maybe trying to teach and coach and things aren't going as smoothly or being caught on as, as fastly as I hope they would. Sure. But I never forget that the individual had come to had sought out myself or the place that we work at and they want to be here. Don't give them any reason to hate being here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the individual, uh, you know, I love my each and every single individual person that I have on my staff, you know, at times I probably love them too much. You know, I, I get so attached to them and if they're having a rough day, then it, it affects me or if they're going through a rough period in their time, mm-hmm. 
it, it affects me. Um, but, you know, I think more importantly, um, we're all here to cook together and share in that act, which for most of us, the reason why we do it is it brings us happiness. I, I love cooking. I love the way I feel and the exhilaration I get behind a good service or that, that plate that was damn near perfect. You yeah. know, there's never such, nothing will ever be perfect, but if getting to that point, that's, it's so exhilarating mm-hmm. and knowing that we're doing it and cooking for other people that may have had a bad day, uh, you know, or has the world on their shoulders. It's, I say this all the time, you know, we have those people in our dining room for those two hours. Um, and we have the power through our cooking and food for them to eat, to feel wholesome and comforted again. And if, if I can do that to any diner that comes through the, the restaurant and, you know, takes a bite of food and they just feel so wholesome and happy and just complete, then, you know, we've done our job, Mm. you know, sure. You know, Michelin stars, you know, I would love one, you know, how, how hard do I, am I going to keep pushing to get one? You know, those are all, those are questions I'm asking myself right now. Mm -hmm. Um, without losing focus and losing sight of the real reason why I cook. And it's because of that. It's because it makes me happy and hopefully being surrounded by guests who are receiving my cooking the way that I hope they are. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's tough to see some staff members go through some hard things, but I always try to make myself accessible and, you know, cause my staff is my rock. You know, I, I go through, we all have our own demons. We all have our own, you know, uh, hardships on the outside, but what I can look forward to each day is seeing everyone in my kitchen and it just instantly puts a smile on my face to see that they're doing well Mm -hmm. and that they're okay. And and, and we're there with another day with each other to share some laughs and some stories and, and to make it through another service, you know, how, how easy or how hard it may be. We make it to the end together. Awesome. So you get to go, so you get to go to all these cool places and like what made you come back to the, the city that's always frozen for seven months out of the year. And I mean, you know, the reason we were late to our podcast today is you had a little accident on the ice today with your tires. So yep. what made you want to come back to this beautiful frozen hell? Yeah. Buffalo? Yeah. I mean, despite, despite the winter weather and the mishap, you know, hitting a patch of ice today. Um, it, you know, it, it's weird. You know, I, I've left three to four times. I've had other friends and family members leave, but for some reason we've always come back. And I think it's because the city, as tough as the winters are, the very first nice day on spring makes you fall in love with Buffalo over and over again. And the summers here are great. Um, you know, it's, what brought me back was I was traveling and I was living away from home for so long. And, you know, I missed my friendships that I had. Uh, I missed my family. Um, and so I kind of wanted to move home and rekindle that in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been very successful with my friendships, uh, rekindling those cause I've just been working so hard and, and a lot still. Um, but to see my, my family members a little more often has been great. Awesome. Um, but Buffalo itself, there's just a sense of just like opportunity here that I, that I feel the most. It's, 
you know, last year there's 38 new restaurants that opened up in our city, which is a lot. Um, it's exciting, but at the same time scary because, you know, luckily I'm at a venerable restaurant that, you know, has been open for 80, I think 83 years now, 84. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we're going nowhere. You know, we, we've got great clientele and I'm, I'm very thankful for being able to run such a reputable restaurant. Um, but if, it, if it's also discouraging because if I ever choose to try to do my own thing here in Buffalo, is there enough, is there still enough left on the bone for me to take a bite out of and, and establish myself and, and draw people in? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if you have something that's great and that people want, of course they're going to come, you know. Uh, but we also might be competing with Chick-fil-A that just opened, you know. Yep. Uh, you know, there's there's lines at Chick-fil-A 45 minutes long for people to eat a fried chicken sandwich. And there's other people that small family-owned restaurants that are struggling because, you know, they may have something a, a lot better than what's being offered at Chick-fil-A, but they're just not getting the people in. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, for Buffalo, it's, it's definitely a sense of opportunity. Um, there's a lot of uh, – great camaraderie between all the Buffalo chefs here. Um, early on when I first started, it was almost like a brotherhood. Uh, since then, you know, it's kind of tapered off and, you know, because it's becoming more cutthroat. I don't think we still stay as close as we can. Uh, I know some relationships are more severed now because of competition, but, um, the chef community here in Buffalo is strong and, and I wanted to be a part of it. Rather mm-hmm. than just be a visitor like I like I was in the in the years past, when I would come home for like six months and then leave again. Um, so yeah, so I've been here for close to it'll be three years next month in February since I've been home from Texas and, um, you know I think I've got a strong foothold here at, at Oliver's and you know I have have a following and that's what I was hoping for when I moved home was to to really make a to create a following for people who want to come and enjoy um, food or a culinary experience that through my eyes, you know, um, the tasting menu is starting to pick up as of lately, which is, which is awesome. We we tried marketing it before um, and it was, it did well and then it just fell by the wayside and no one was really pushing it. No one was coming in for it. Um, Within the past month, I think we've done more than we have all year. So hopefully hopefully we can ride that train and, and which will allow us to cook the way that I that I truly love to cook. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, putting a sixteen ounce piece of ribeye on a on a plate. Yeah. You know, it's to for me to stay engaged is to always focus on refining a dish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean for my friends like you that listen and I've talked to them. Uh, about you, you know, they're, they'll never truly know. What bothers me, I guess, about you being a Buffalo is not a lot of people will know how great you are yet. Or they, I mean, I think over time you're going to have that big break where people will start coming from out of town to eat. And, you know, some people do. But, like, for the people at culinary school, like, they're looking to go into these jobs with these, like, big, like, big-name chefs. And, you know, they're going to be starting at the bottom where I came to you and, you know, I didn't – by no means was I like in a managerial role at first, but you gave me responsibility and you let me create things and let me think through things. And I truly think you, like you have cooked the best meal of my life. Like I can say that 
hands down for like going out to a restaurant. I mean, my mom would kill me if I said it was the best food I ever had. But for going to a restaurant, you have cooked the best meal of my life. So it just, I really hope that the food scene here kind of grows to the point where people outside of the region, maybe from New York or maybe from Philadelphia, will take a trip to over here just to have your cooking. So where yeah. do you see Buffalo in the next 10 years, like food wise? I mean, I know it, obviously it's growing, like we said, but do you see the market going to more towards what you would like to cook or do you see it more going towards like the, I don't want to say casual food in a bad way, but like the more like really refined casual dining experience. Yeah. Um, I don't, per, honestly, I, I don't think Buffalo will ever support a restaurant that I'm hoping to either open and own myself or to work at. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's, you know, for me, I, I my ideal spot is tasting menu only. Like if you're coming in, you're trusting in the chef to prepare a meal for you uh, in his style and in the way he feels like cooking today. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, accommodate any dietary restrictions or whatever not that they, they may have. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, to deliver that type of service, that type, that level of food and quality of ingredients, I just think it's out of reach from to be sustainable. People will come. Yes, they will. They will come to a restaurant like that in Buffalo, mm-hmm. but will they come twice in a week? No. Will no. they come, you know, twice a month? Maybe not. I don't want to, I don't want to build something and just be put into the category of just being a special occasion place yeah. you know, where people might go once a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what works here in Buffalo and will continue to work in Buffalo 10 years from now is something that is accessible to, to everyone. Mm-hmm. You know, young professionals my age, um, they love going out. They're not afraid of going out, but they're going to go somewhere where they can, you know, have a couple drinks, have a bite to eat with their, with their spouse or with their girlfriend and get out at a price point of, you know, 80 to a hundred dollars, mm-hmm. you know, whereas at a fine dining place that tasting menu only scene like that, you're in it at, you know, 80 to a hundred dollars per person. Yeah. You, you know, you know what I mean? And so like, it's, and most people, my age, my friends, they, they don't understand the food that I cook because you know, Buffalo is a chicken wing and beef on wick and, you know, type of city. Everyone says it. And we're, it's a fast, casual city mm-hmm. without a doubt. Um, and that's where they see the value in it as well. They're, they're getting in and out in a timely manner. The food is good. The beer is cold. Cocktails are good. Uh, and it's not breaking the bank. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one spot that's doing it really well right now, I've already shouted them out in Buffalo Eats, like best meals of 2018, is uh, the Little Club up here on hurdle just around the, just around the corner from us it's a wine bar and their menu is extremely small for food offerings um but it's just it's meat cheese and like fine tinned seafood like just like imported uh tinned seafood like mussels and sardines and um what do they have calamari in tins and like they're of they're great quality stuff yeah. It's it's what an industry person will want to be eating after they've worked a, a shift and drinking a, a, a decent glass of wine. Yeah. Yeah, I, I really love the atmosphere there. Um, but yeah, to be, you know, a hip, trendy, fast, casual spot, I think is, will, you know, withstand 
withstand the, the longevity of what will work here in, in Buffalo is, is that kind of concept. Um, you know, it's, you know, saying that, you know, I've, there's a there's a big part of me that wants to you know take a, a big chance and go somewhere and because I, I truly I believe that I'm with a team that I can run and visions I have that we could definitely achieve a Michelin rated star mm-hmm. place you know and that's that's a goal of mine but it's not gonna be here in Buffalo um, <laughs> no. if I if I choose to go for it because the guy will never come to Buffalo. Uh, but you know, that's, that's a battle. Like I said earlier, is, is that I'm having with myself right now is, you know, do I take that big chance or do I just stay in Buffalo and learn to be happy with what I create and, mm-hmm. you know, take value and be happy with the people who come in and want to enjoy it and, and just be happy rather than being super stressed out, trying to, you know, achieve something that is honestly not my control. Yeah. I can control it as best as I can, but it's obviously up to the inspectors who show up. So Yeah. Well, I think you're starting to embrace your Buffalo heritage a lot. You know, one of your tasty menu dishes is inspired from Chevetta's flavors. And if you're not from <laughs> Buffalo, you don't know what I just said. But uh, Chevetta's is basically a, a vinegar-based marinade that we marinate chicken in. And uh, a Chevetta's cookout is usually the chicken's marinated and then it's grilled. Mm-hmm. These big grills, you'd find, usually find it at maybe like a church gathering you know, if they're like holding like an Easter egg yeah. hunt or four or five hundred chickens, yeah. half chickens, four to five hundred half chickens being grilled at all times at these at these functions. Yeah. So you made a dish, and you can explain the dish and the components. But um, I guess just I would love to kind of for this one dish just go inside your creative thinking behind it because it's such a creative dish, and it brings me back to childhood, and everyone who's eating the dish brings them back to childhood, and you know, I mean to use chicken. For one, I it's my least favorite protein to eat, but this yeah. dish is one of my favorites you've ever done. So if you just want to talk to us about it. Yeah. So uh, uh, Chevetta's chicken is – the problem with me with Chevetta's chicken, I love the flavor of it, but the whole concept of this dish came from that the skin is never crispy. It's always – you know, you have this marinated grilled half chicken, flavored really well, cooked really well, but the, the skin is just always – soggy because they package it up in the container and it just steams out. So I wanted to deliver a Chevetta's flavor chicken with crispy skin. Um, so, you know, what we, what I decided to do was just completely remove the skin in its entirety and make it as crisp as possible, which we, we did. Um, we would marinate the chicken breast the, uh, in the Chevetta's mix overnight. And then we would cook it in sous vide, um, as well, um, at interval cooking. Um, that's one thing I've found that I learned at Franz and Leanberg too, as well, cooking poultry in intervals, you know, 145 for an hour, then going up to, you know, 152 for like another half hour, um, lends to a more juicier plump chicken, um, piece of chicken. And that's what we were doing with some chevettes in the bag. Uh, rendering the skin between sill pats in the oven until it's really crispy, like a thin cracker. Um, and on the pick, we would brush reduced chevettas. Um, we would make a glaze from it and brush it onto the skin to really get that last punch of flavor from it. And then my most favorite part um, is the potato salad. Um, 
potato salads always served with the chevettas. It's potato salad and coleslaw. Um, I decided to omit the coleslaw and think about this potato salad. Uh, the first attempt we did, it was just like PB potatoes. And it was kind of a deconstructed potato salad, which I was not happy with at all. Um, flavors were good, but it just, I wanted to focus in on it a little more. So then we moved to Brunoising, uh potatoes and celery, cooking them separately and then making a dressing, um, a potato salad dressing from soubise, which is a white onion puree. Um, sweat, uh, onion, sweat, and butter in water until it's extremely soft and blended down. Uh, I, I decided to use shallots. They're a little sweeter. Um, again, sweat down in butter and water and then pureed smooth. But on the blend, I would add gelatin in um, to thicken it once it's cooled. Um, a little bit of... Uh, yeah, so... Uh, on the blend down of the shallots with uh, some mayonnaise, gelatin, sour cream, and, and fr- of course, French's yellow mustard uh, <laughs> to stay true to the American potato salad. Um, and then we cool that down slightly. Uh, and once it's starting to bind up with the gelatin is when we fold in the, the brunoise potato and celery and pickled mustard seeds. Um, and it's a, it's a quenellable consistency, um, but it tastes just like, just like, you know, a potato salad that you grew up on. Um, yeah, it, it did. It, <laughs> it, and I liked the second batch you made, which had more mustard. And I know Amanda thought it had too much mustard. And I just, <laughs> it was cool because that's more like a preferential thing. So yeah. it was really cool to see that we were able to be on that level of, you know, even though it was like a fine dining dish, we still had our preferences and be able to say, like, oh, maybe it could add a little more mustard or not. So, yeah. And then you had the root beer. Yeah. And then uh, to, to kind of tie it all together, I, I like to drink pop when I eat my Chavez chicken, and root beer is one of my favorites. Uh, so we made a, a molasses of, um, using root beer, which is a technique that, that that's found in, in Volt with, from the Voltaggio brothers cookbook. Um, just taking root beer and, uh, some aromatics and just letting it sit in the dehydrator until it just naturally evaporates into a thick syrup. And, that's uh, cool. so it's almost like a, just a nice little refined small dot of, uh, a sweet root beer syrup on the plate that just kind of tied everything together. Awesome. So uh, going into like thinking of these dishes, what do you look for when starting to write a tasting menu? Because right, making a dish in itself is hard. I mean, when you ask me to make dishes for, for tasting menus, it's usually like a day affair for me. And like, mm. I made one dish that I was really proud of, the Sunchuck dish. That's probably the yes. fastest I ever thought of a dish in my entire life. Mm. Most of the time I have to go home and I have to open up the Flavor Bible and kind of get my creative space going because for me – I'm, I'm not like you in the sense where, like, I need to sit down for a while and think. Like, I'm really good, I think, at coming up with certain ideas on the flies. But, like, you know, I could, you know, you know, in the kitchen, I'll come up with a T-shirt idea or something mm-hmm. or some cool business thing. But when it comes to food, I'm just, like, <laughs> I'm stuck. I'm like, damn. But and there's always this barrier. So how do you go to about writing, like, an eight-course to 11-course tasty menu? Um. Honestly, I just take a sheet of paper and I make how many of the courses I want to cook that night. I just make dashes mm-hmm. on the left-hand side and just to see, like, the blank space. And, you know, there, there's always go-tos, like, you know, our, the egg that we do here. You know, that's – if I know no one's had that or if it's their first time dining here, egg is number one no matter what. Yeah, um, that's the duck hens of egg. If you, you probably won't know, but it was the first dish I had that Ross had me taste of his and kind of what got me into this magical state that I was in for my whole time here 
Uh, it's just it's an egg sous vide in a water bath. And yeah, you can explain it. But. Yeah, it's a sous vide. Separate the yolk from the white and put the white back. Sorry, the, the yolk back into the shell and float it on the circulator bath um, for an hour until it, it sets to the consistency of a of a sunny side egg. Uh, the yolk consistency would be, and then uh, some truffle oil, uh, crispy pancetta, and then uh, a potato foam which is basically just a really loose mashed potato mm-hmm. with a lot of cream and butter and then put into the ISI gun and held warm uh, in the water bath. And so uh, so we aerate the, the potato base from all the cream that's inside it and, you know, expel that into the eggshell. And it looks like it's an egg full of mashed potatoes, but it's the most, it's a really light mashed potato consistency. Um, egg yolk, crispy pancetta, it's, it's like eating breakfast really in, in three bites. You forgot the seven grains of salt. The seven grains of salt, yes. <laughs> not eight, not six. Don't even think about putting four in there. Um, yeah, seven grains of salt. <laughs> yeah. So getting back to uh, thinking about the tasting menu, sorry. Was a no, yeah, you're good. Um, yeah, then, you know, I, I usually then go, I kind of work my way backwards. I think of a dessert first mm-hmm. just to see how heavy I plan on ending the meal, which really dictates on how heavy I want to go in the middle and the beginning of the meal. Mm-hmm. Um, so after I figure out the end dessert, I then move to proteins and figure and decide, do I want to use, you know, duck, duck breast or, you know, what do I want to use for the red meat course? Do I want to use beef? Do I want to use something lighter like veal? Do I want to, you know, lamb, elk, venison, whatever. Um, seafood's quite easy. I just usually tend to go to like a, a higher oily you know, dense fish. Um, I don't work with shellfish too much um, as like a featured like entree portion of a tasting menu. I'll do like maybe a, a cold prep of a shellfish, mm-hmm. um, maybe a, like a, a chilled lobster salad um, thing or, you know, a spin with some shrimp. Um, I always try to do at least one vegetable focused dish. Uh, I like to do a pasta dish. Um tortellini is really my go-to because mm-hmm. I just, I love the art of making tortellini and how they look and what you can put inside and what else is on the outside. That's a, that's complementing you know, the pasta itself. And yeah. You may be the, like two years ago, you maybe the duck tortellini was still one of my favorite dishes. Mm-hmm. I think it was duck confit tortellini. I forget the broth. It was, I think it was a duck broth. It was just three tortellini and then shaved Parmesan on top. Or I don't know if it was Parmesan. Yeah. Then there's pickled kohlrabi mm-hmm. with the tortellini and then, yeah, I think maybe Midnight Moon. It was probably Midnight Moon, yeah. Uh, yeah, but just simple simple like that. Um, but, you know, writing a tasting menu, I also, also think of how I can take them on a roller coaster. Like, not just doing an even progression of just flavors and intensities and, and heaviness. Like, you know, each plate I always want, I always think of texture, taste, um, you know, sweet, salty, sour, bitter, um, you know, try to incorporate those in different forms on each dish throughout the menu. So you just don't get fatigued just progressing through a meal. Um, cause by the time you get to your entree, your palate's going to be fatigued. You're going to mm-hmm. be, you're going to be overwhelmed. So, if, you know, if you keep, if you have certain courses like your second or third course will just be a, a punch of just brightness. It'll wake your palate back up. It'll make you more engaged and, you know, um, 
excited about the next course because we caught you off guard of, you know, something that may have looked familiar on the plate, but tasted completely different or was that much more surprising. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And so then what does perfection on a plate matter to you? Like, why does it matter so much? Because there's definitely been times where you've, you haven't been happy and I, you know, the rest of the kitchen and even the guests have loved it, but like, you know, we kind of touched on this briefly before. Yeah. Why does it matter so much to you that the dish is exactly how you see it? Is it just because like, why else would you try? Is that kind of your mentality? If you're not going to live up to your expectations and why? I guess, you know, I, I guess, I guess it's, it's an inner battle for myself. It's, you know, am I proud of what was put on that plate? Yeah, uh, I, I am. But, you know, in that moment, I'm not mm-hmm. because I just because I because I know I could have done better. And I guess I get more upset at myself in that moment that I know I could have done better or it didn't come out the way I envisioned it to be. And then I start questioning myself in that moment and getting hard on myself mm-hmm. of why didn't it, you know, why why did you do it this way? Like you could have done, I instantly start thinking of different ways of doing something. As soon as that plate gets picked up off the pass and starts walking out very few times. And am I just like, yeah, I nailed that. Um, the reason why it's so important to me, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough because it, for any creative or artistic person, like they, they'll always have that an eye and that drive to just know that they know that they have created something that they've accepted themselves. Someone who is, you know, a perfectionist is really hard, you know, to please. Mm-hmm. Um, we're all perfectionists in our own right. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's, it's easy for me to lose focus in the whole picture. And there's people like you that kind of help ground me and just say, you know, it may have not turned out exactly how you wanted it, but they're going to love it anyway. Or, you know, there's plenty of other people around here that think it's, you know, a great, you know, a great dish, mm-hmm. both visually, flavor, technique, whatever. Um, and it's just me losing focus. It's me, I guess, looking at it based on an artistic way mm-hmm. rather than finding the joy and the art and the imperfection of that dish. And it's, in the end, it has to taste good. If it doesn't taste good, then you're just then you're really in trouble. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It doesn't matter how great it looks. Um, you know, it's that's why it's called culinary arts. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, it's an equal balance between everything. And you know, one of my favorite movies is a good time to you know plug this little movie and quote is I love the Greatest Showman. The movie. Okay. Have you seen it yet? No, but my With girlfriend is going to my girlfriend's going to share because she's been wanting me to see it for a while. Oh my gosh. I've seen this movie like at least 14, 15 times already. And every single time I watch this movie, I light up like a little kid and sing along and like dance around in my seat and just smile during the whole movie because it's it touches on our industry. Like I I translate it into my life and feels if I can relate to the movie a lot. And the very last quote at the end of the movie, you know, is hits home every single time I read it. And it goes along the lines of um, the noblest of art is making those 
happy or making people happy. Mm. Like that's the noblest form of art is making people happy. Yeah. You know, culinary arts. I'm so focused on the way dishes look and how they taste, but I lose sight in the noblest art is making people happy. I lose sight of that when my dish isn't picture perfect that I think belongs in, you know, on the world's 50 best like website or something Mm -hmm. like that. You know, that's when I get bent out of shape because I, I know that I, my food tastes just as good as theirs do. And at times is as photogenic. Um, But when I have an off dish, I get bent out of shape on the visual aspect of it rather than knowing it's going to make the people happy no matter what, no matter if that microgreen is not there or, you know, if the celery isn't perfectly curled the way I want it, you know, it's, it's not going to matter to the diner because mm-hmm. it's, they're going to love it no matter what, when they take the first bite. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. And it's a good way to like listening to your thought process. And I'm definitely, I'm definitely starting to get that now. Um, out of all things, podcasting, I'll be sitting on my computer and, you know, someone like you or EJ who I had on mm-hmm. or Adam and Olivia or Cole so far, my guest so far, they'll send me their introductions. And for Adam and Olivia in particular, because it was longer, I probably did it like over 20 times because <laughs> uh, there was always something that I didn't think sounded good. And there's always something that for me would discredit the respect I have for them and kind of the the showmanship I have for them and also like just representing them as a podcaster and having y'all come on the podcast. Yeah. So for me, I kind of like, I kind of get that in a sense where you want to make people happy, but you also have your own standards and you want to live up to those and meet those. So mm-hmm. that's definitely something that I can relate to uh, through this. So I guess, you know, we've kind of talked about touched on how you stay motivated when, you know, creating food because your motivation, it seems is to like be and making others happy and kind of pushing yourself. Yeah. Who has been one of your biggest mentors for cooking throughout all the years? And maybe someone who you've been able to look look back on or your experiences with them or maybe even get advice now and then. Okay, so I have – with that question, there's three. Um, like I mentioned earlier, Scott Bova, he's the one that really showed me how to be a leader of men, be a leader of a team. Um, he works for – I don't know his exact title, but he works for Wegmans. He – he is the chef for every single Wegmans, like, restaurant or eatery. So, like, you know, the the pub that I think Wegmans have, like, some restaurants mm-hmm. called yeah. the pub. Yeah. He, he oversees that. He oversees Taste, their flagship restaurant in Rochester. Um, so he's, he's pretty much like the corporate restaurant chef of Wegmans. And he i value talking to him because he he has a great outside an insight of um of how to manage and how to empower people mm-hmm. that's where i've gotten a lot of mentorship through him uh and he's helped me become the type of manager i am today which you know i tend to use the the mark of i'm an equal opportunity asshole you know i'm i'll be laid back in some ways, I'll be understanding about some things, but when it's time to, you know, you know, scratch my back or if it's not being reciprocated, then obviously the other actions are taken, taken into place and whatever not. But, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, he was, he definitely helped me shape and sh- shape me into the manager I am and the, 
today. Um, Chef Stephen Durfee um, is the one who really taught me to always strive for perfection and never accept anything less uh, than what you know you're capable of. There's times that I was helping him train for his pastry competitions and we would make the same cake six times in one day because he just was not happy with the thickness of the, the pat of wheat layer in his cake. Yeah. It, was, it was off by an eighth of an inch. <laughs> the, you know, the base of the cake was, you know, a quarter of an inch too thick. We need a quarter of an inch less, less of cake and just making the same cake six times in one day just blew my mind at that age. Cause it's just like, well, why can't we wait? And, let's just try again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You know, and he would just say tomorrow's too late. Yeah. And I'd be like, oh, okay, I'll start scaling out again. Here we go. <laughs> um, so he, he really showed me that aspect. And then my best friend, Alex, I look up to him big time. You know, I, and his vice versa. He looks up to me. I look up to him. What I, what he has, what I love about him is he constantly makes me think of how to be more efficient. Like why waste moves? Why, why not just work efficient? Like when I was stodging with him, I went to visit him, uh, in uh, Little Washington uh, for a weekend, and I was in, at the, in Little Washington stodging in the kitchen with him. And I would notice he would take his butter, his, his piece of butter that he would put into the pan on, like, the pickup for the pan sauce. He would dip half of it in the minced shallot and half of it in the minced garlic and then put it on his, like, little sizzler tray, like, set tray. And I looked at him like, why are you doing that? He's like, well, why, why am I going to reach in three separate containers to pull out three different ingredients where this butter is sticky and I just dip it in and right there, I don't, when it's time to pick up that pan sauce, I just pick up my little butter pat and put it in. Everything's in there. I'm not reaching in three separate ones, you know, butter. Then I have butter fingers and then you know, the shallots are sticking to my fingers and the garlic. And it just makes sense. Something so small. He just always breaks down efficiency to the nth degree and I mean, that's why he's so successful doing what he's doing now of he sets up a brand new kitchen every single day like mm-hmm. they travel with all their own equipment is being you know towed around the country he wakes up he, they pull in at five in the morning at you know an arena or a stadium and he has to look at the spot that's designated and he needs to coordinate exactly where all the equipment goes he needs to hook it all up and they need to have breakfast out by seven thirty in the morning Damn. and you know, I just, I value his, his eye for efficiency and always just trying to be better. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So what is one thing you love about the industry? Hmm. What's your favorite part of the industry? I love the industry because the food is just a common language. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a common language, and honestly, it's just job security, too. I mean, like, you, you go over to Japan, I mean, people got to eat over there, too. You know how to cook. You, you can find a place to work. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, food food brings everyone together. Food When you eat food, you eat at a table. You know, it brings people around a table where other things, you know, bring people together, but it could create controversy, you know, like mm-hmm. politic talk and, you know, sporting teams and whatever not. And, you know, I've, within the past weeks, I've, I've gone to two Italian families house houses for like Sunday sauce, like traditional Sunday sauce. And, you know, I was telling, 
my girlfriend's father, uh, sorry, my girlfriend, my girlfriend's grandfather on how we make our bolognese. And he was up in arms and created a big stink to find out we put onions in our bolognese sauce. <laughs> and, but then I go over to another person's house and they're saying, you know, onions belong there, but it's, people have their different opinions, but at the same, but in the end, food brings people around a table to have an experience and it brings them to have a conversation and learn about each other and learn about different ways to cook. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no rules in cooking. There's only guidelines. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, you know, being able to go and visit other chefs, restaurants and being treated, you know, be, being treated well, like we're, we're, we're in their home for the night. <laughs> And they want to make sure that we're being treated well and have a, a great night off because they know that we don't get many nights off. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they, you know, when I have fellow chefs come in here or friends or family, I want to make sure that their evenings as good as it can get um, through food and service and drink. Uh, but you know, in the end, it's it's just I love the industry because it's ever changing. If if you're not if you're not thinking ahead, you've already failed. You know, if, if you're not thinking of, you know, the next thing or, or how to get, how to look at something else differently or how to improve something that's in your restaurant, it, either the food, style of service, um, you know, just usage of paper products, usage of towels or linens. If you're not ever thinking and trying to get ahead, you're just always going to be behind and run the risk of not succeeding. Um, you know, it's, it's just, it's fun to always come into work each day. And with each new day is another opportunity to become great and do right in this industry. That's why I love it. Great. All right. So I've been ending the last couple of interviews with some Rapid fire questions, I like to call them. Oh, rapid fire, okay. <laughs> they, don't be, they don't have to be that quick. But basically, it's whatever pops into my head I'm going to ask you. So okay. My, uh, and this is going to be quick, but... Do I have to answer just as quick? No, you, don't, you can take some time <laughs> to, to reflect. I'm long-winded, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, I'm trying I'm, I'm trying to be the, the longest podcast guest on the, on the show, so I think I'm succeeding. So. Yeah, I think you're, you've already passed, you've already passed <laughs> DJ, so yeah, you are the longest so far. Um, so being one of the premier chefs of Buffalo, it's time to get this out there. Uh, what's your, what's your favorite wing in the Buffalo area? Barville. Barville still reigns supreme. Yeah. We went to Elmo's, we went to Elmo's a few weeks back or like probably two months ago with the kitchen for a kitchen meeting to talk about the new menu. And I thought that they stole the show. Mm-hmm. Um, they were definitely by far some of the best wings I've had, but I went back, I think like two weeks later. And they were completely different. They were not good. And then I went, when I got back from my trip um, at the end of November, and they were good again, but for consistency and I mean, Barbell, okay. hands down, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to explain <laughs> anymore. It's Barbell, Barbell wins. They're, they're medium and they're honey, zesty pepper. Okay. Medium and honey, zesty pepper. Yes. Great. Uh, so you're all about the guests and guest interactions, but there's got to be something that pisses you off when it comes into the kitchen. 
what's your least favorite thing to see on a ticket or maybe what's the most annoying thing you've ever seen on a ticket for me i believe it was here uh we had a charcuterie board and they were allergic to salt and for charcuterie <laughs> you need salt to do a lot of stuff and they just eat the toast so for you what's what's something that grind that has grinded your gears in the past it doesn't have to be here but anywhere in general um I don't know. I just one thing that I just really don't get and that just annoys me is just like the medium rare plus or the medium plus. <laughs> it's like you're you're literally asking for an extra like three to four degrees of cooking. Like they're like that that's that's kind of off putting because I, I just it just makes me seem to think that the people really don't know what they want. Like, do you want medium rare or do you want medium? What's yeah. medium plus? Yeah. You, 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 you know what I mean? Um, that, that, that kind of grinds my gears. Others, um, another one of my favorites is nothing touching. (laughs) We get a couple orders like that where all the, all the food can, they want it on the same plate, but it can't be touching. So it's just like piles of food. We find, we always find the biggest plate here is put piles of food all over it. Um, so nothing's touching. And then, um, there recently we had someone come in that was a vegetarian, mm-hmm. but poultry was okay. okay. They'd eat poultry. Okay. And I understand pescatarians and stuff like that. Like, I, I think that's great. You know, people who just choose to eat fish, but like, here's a vegetarian coming in and they're, they're, they're choosing to eat like probably one of the most unsanitary, like creatures we eat. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, that, that, that one baffled me. The, not not angered me but yeah just just some really odd requests uh you know there's stuff i i really can't think of, of too many um off the top of my head but um i remember down in texas someone wanted the sausage without gumbo when we had the sausage when we had the, the gumbo on there so we had, to, we had to sit there and pick out all the sausage with our tweezers before we sent it out and just just whatever but yeah man <laughs> That's I try. Fine. I try to stay as calm as I can when those requests come in, and um, yeah. So, everyone in the Oliver's crew. Oh, sorry, oh, to, sorry. to, to touch ahead. on that. Um, I've had a couple beef tartars asking for the beef to be cooked. What? Yeah, there's there's this there's this one guy that we, that came in here last year. He wanted the beef tartar, but he wanted the beef cooked to medium well before we cut it up and, oh, and served it. God. That that one was that one was pretty funny. If you're out there and you're like beef tartare cook, don't don't come. To, uh, to I'm just kidding. You're all welcome. But um, so Oliver's crew, because I have to shout out the Oliver's crew, mm-hmm. and my time here with them has been great. You know, everyone in the kitchen, you all know who you are. You all know I like Twenty One Pilots. It's one of my favorite bands, and I always get, I guess, put on blast because of me playing them a lot and just loving them to the extreme. So I want to finally get on the open. Do you like 21 pilots or do you not like 21 pilots? Okay. Since, since, you know, this is on podcast now and it's, it's only you and I, and I can admit it to you in person and over the microphone. Yes. I, I do enjoy 21 pilots. I don't, I don't look to put their music on as much as I, as much as people would think I would, mm-hmm. but if their song is on, I, I do enjoy listening to their music. 
Thank you. It's nice <laughs> to hear. Um, and what type of music are you interested in? Because I know what you like to hear, and it was very shocking to me. Your uh, your interests. You guys go see a band recently, and what yeah. you're telling me about them is just interesting to hear. Yeah. So like. I mean, I listen to pretty much anything. You know, I, I like country, I rap, R and B, whatever, whatever that like makes me feel happy or alive or energetic like whatever movie whatever i say i say whatever can make me jiggle in my pants which means you know get me dancing in my pants a little bit i enjoy it but uh yeah recently i went to go see too many zoos in in philadelphia they were originated as buskers in union station in uh, new york city in the subway and it's a baritone saxophone player a trumpet player and a percussion person with like a, a bass drum and some tambourines and whatever not and they label themselves as brass house music. Mm-hmm. Um, I do enjoy house music. I, I do enjoy EDM, um, electric dance music. Um, but yeah, like these these three individuals are so much fun. They're just they have all the hype. The the saxophone player is out of control, and uh, yeah, it's uh, I, I I tend to like music that most people don't like, <laughs> but. I can relate to them liking the music that they, they like as well. Okay. Uh, one book for aspiring cooks out there. Ooh. I know mine. I said it on the last podcast. Yeah, no, I, just, I, just wanna, I just don't want to. Oh, you said it on your last podcast? That I recorded that's not out yet. Okay. You know, I'm going to say it every podcast until someone reads it and tells me it was amazing. But what's the book for you that you think every culinarian should read? Um, I don't know. Becoming a chef. I mean, that's that's really to be honest with you. That's what, really one of the only books I've read that was actually like a reading book about the industry by Michael Roman. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and then I think he came out with a second one too, like the, the making of a chef. And then there was a, I thought he came out with another one. Soul of a chef and the reach of a chef. The what one? There's a soul. The soul of a chef. Yeah which was more focused on, I think, the Michelin star people and then the reach of the chef on like TV personalities. Okay. I read The Soul of a Chef then. Mm-hmm. That was also a good book. Um, yeah. Cookbooks. Cookbook-wise. Cookbook-wise. Because um, you have a lot. Yeah. And what's one maybe that you're really into right now? Um, I just got them for Christmas. I call them the Unicorn Cookbooks because I, I've – didn't know that these restaurants had them out there, but uh, L'Atelier uh, cookbook that's a restaurant up in Ottawa, okay. Canada. Um, Mark Lapine uh, is the chef. Uh, it's a really solid cookbook. And then um, I'm going to butcher the name, but it's a restaurant in France. It's called like Mirazur, Mirazur, M-I-R-A-Z-U-R, I believe is how you spell it. Um just a dude cooking seasonality, like what he finds in, you know, the French valleys and whatever, not super, super inspiring and just really focused and, and simplistic yet elegant and, and finessed in a way that is, I'm sure a memorable meal to whoever eats there. Um, yeah, but for, you know, for a beginning, a beginner cookbook, you know, French laundry is always a good one. Uh, it's a good read as well. Um, what else? Um, the EMP, 11 Madison Park cookbooks, a good, 
reference. I, I, I like for 11 Madison Park, I like how they break it down in the back of just like, just like the basics of like your oils, vinegars, butters, like those recipes, not, not solely just for like, Oh yeah. Like here's their John Dory dish and you know, let's cook everything out of that. I like their reference in the back of the book of all like their lifesavers or like their pantry items, Mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. I think it's a really solid cookbook in in that regard. Um, Awesome. Yeah. Great. I have two more questions for you. One, what is the most memorable, memorable mistake I've made while working under you? (laughs) Because like I said, there's been a lot, but what is one that sticks out to you? Whether it was funny or whether it was soul crushing. See that, that that's that's the nice thing about having me as a boss is I really don't remember anything past a month. Okay, I really don't. I that's that's why I, I'm good at what I do at you know confronting a a situation that needs to be addressed mm-hmm. uh, as controversial as it may be, and then the very next day, like it's a, it's a brand new day. Like it's it's like it never, we never had that conversation, or you know, there's no hard feelings behind it. Um, that's one thing I credit myself in being able to do. Uh, so thinking back on things that that were done like two years ago when you started with me, like I, I can't remember any of those. Um, I mean, you, you could always help and remind me. Uh, I think the, the biggest one in recent memory was we had that party and you'd ask me to double check everything for the salads and I forgot oh, to post asparagus. And that was, that was one of the, that was probably the worst, in my opinion, the worst mistake I made because we had to put, uh, Poached asparagus on the fly, but yep. I think that one, that one, even the tone of voice asparagus, just changed. There's, the, there's the asparagus and the plum night. The plum, I don't remember the plum. The plums on the beet salad. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we will talk about those ones. Yeah, yeah. But you know, message out there to young cooks: you're always going to learn, even when you've been with a chef for three years. Um, don't get lax. Yeah. And then um, my last question is: uh, What does it mean to you be to be a part of Line Cook Nation? You know, we're young, we're growing, we're almost to a thousand on yeah. Instagram. We're, yeah, man. We have over five hundred plays on the podcast so far. What is your um feelings about this line cook nation and being a part of other cooks who are gonna be able to relate to you? I I cannot be more I'm probably gonna get teary eyed doing this right now too. This is gonna be bullshit some bullshit. I'm gonna be crying on this podcast, but I cannot be any more proud of you um on creating this movement and just fucking sorry. I tend to talk that way when I get extremely passionate about something, but um, for you to realize that there is a need for an outlet, um, you know, line cook thoughts, line cook nation is so much more than just a podcast. It's, you know, I think you're trying to build it into a community where we can all network together and be there for each other. Because this industry is ruthless. I mean, if you're not strong, if you're not on guard, if you're not willing to, you know, take the risk of trying to be successful in this industry, it can come down on you real hard. You know, it's, you know, with the unfortunate events with, you know, other colleagues, um, throughout the last few years with, you know, Omar, Omar Okantu and uh, Anthony Bourdain and, and there's thousands of other ones out there, you know, that mm-hmm. are, we I mean, don't even know about. Yeah. That we don't even know about. Um, but for you to, 
create this forum for us to talk about the industry, to talk about things that we enjoy, things that we think could be touched on, visited and tried to remedy and make better, you know, working conditions or, or, um, or just ways of supporting each other. You know, there's, there's kitchens where I worked in that people didn't support you. Mm -hmm. And, you know, luckily here we're all there for each other. Um, but now you're doing this on a national and I'm sure international at, at one, at one point, um, platform where we can all communicate with each other. And I'm sure there's gonna be friendships and, uh, relationships started through this, this line cook nation. And, and it's gonna be great. I, I, I can't, to, to watch you, you're wise beyond your years. Um, you've taken me aside a few times, most recently last week or the beginning of this week and, you know, brought to my attention things that I've done and how I can make people feel. And, you know, that was rewarding to me and it has been And you know, that the times that we did have, you know, the plum story, you mm -hmm. know, the, the very next day you, you typed me a very heartfelt message that, you know, I didn't know I had that much impact on you. And then that made me think, well, what impact do I have on others around me and whatever not. And, you know, we both were there for each other during some hard times the past, you know, a few months with, with some loss in our families. And yeah, I just, I think I'm surprised no one has thought of doing something like this before. Yeah. Me too. Um, mm -hmm. yeah honestly, I really am because it's, it's, it's genius. And I think, there's going to be so much success in it, not only for you, but for everyone who wants to take part in line cook nation. It's, it's, it's forever going to be helping us progress as a professional. But I think the main goal for you and for most of us is for us to progress in a healthy lifestyle within this industry, mm -hmm. rather than trying to just grind through it and, say, well, this is what it's, this is what's expected. I need to be strong. I need to be okay. Um, because if I'm not, then I'm seen as a weakness and I don't have my shit together and I might not be seen as a value to the team mm -hmm. where I think all of us can relate on so many different things, um, through this. Awesome. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm so happy to be a part of it. I'm honored to actually have a podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you had to help me figure out how to work a podcast. I've never listened to a podcast until you started these things. And I listened to them on my way in in the morning, whenever you, uh, uh release a new one, I listened to it on the way to work. Um, this one I'll probably have to listen to, you know, a couple trips, a couple trips too, in a, in and out of work and, and, and everything else. But like I said, man, you're, you're destined for big things. You're, we've had talks about, you know, you struggling through the decision of whether to keep pushing and trying to achieve Michelin, getting into a Michelin kitchen or, you know, trying or trying to make an impact in a different way to the industry. Mm -hmm. And you don't know it yet, but uh, for myself, and I know there's other people out there, including your family, that they know you're going to make substantial impacts on this industry for us um, more than that you'll, you'll ever know or realize. So, Thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, yeah no, it's just, it's exciting. It's exciting times, and it's exciting. It's been an honor to watch you grow and mature, and 
Um, yeah. And, and, and teach me, uh, throughout the years of, of working with you. So, um, yeah, and I, I know our time's coming up to an end. And one thing I, I hope, I know that you're working on Thursday mm. or Friday, but uh, I hope that you can cook me dinner one of those nights because we're slow. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm definitely nervous. It'll, it'll, it'll be a reward for yourself and myself at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah definitely. Um, so basically now would be the point where we would plug his Instagram Ross doesn't have an Instagram yet. So no Instagram. Hopefully he will get one soon so he can start seeing. Because I tried to get the Facebook updated, but Instagram's <laughs> line cook nation is a lot stronger. Yes. Um, so it's, hopefully Instagram is king. I, I understand that. There is a hashtag out there that people have hashtagged me in, but I just don't know what it yeah, is. Yeah, if you look up hashtag Ross Warhol, you will see those hashtags. But um, <laughs> when he gets on there, we'll share his Instagram. It's going to happen one day. Um, and I guess any last words to the people out there listening? Um, no, just, uh, stay true to yourself and, you know, you know, don't, don't forget the real reason why we're in it each day. Um, essentially putting our hearts onto a plate, uh, and just, just remember to stay true to yourself and, and not get blurred vision of the surroundings around you. There's, there's plenty more to experience in life rather than seeing the inside of a kitchen wall. Um, uh, a healthy work-life balance is key. One that I'm, I struggle with that I, I continue to struggle with and will always continue to struggle with. But um, yeah, it's, this industry can be extremely rewarding if you put the work and effort into it. But like I said, it can also be extremely vicious and uh, it can take and, you know, could take a lot from you. Um, so, yeah, Lion Cook Nation, just keep your head down, keep your knife sharp and, and keep going for it. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on the podcast, Ross. Yeah, thank you.